and say, yes, well done, intellectual four-year-old seventh graders. But <laughs> let's go a little further. Exodus is especially about God showing what he's like. See, all through the Old Testament, how do they identify who God is? Well, he's the God of the Exodus. The Exodus event is not just something God did. It's who he is. Let, let me explain that. Let, let's say I, I was telling you the, the story of a man. Now, this man was born in Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, he went to the University of Purdue, which is in Indiana, which is a state. Maybe not many of us have been to, but it's, it's a state as exists. Uh, this man studied science there. Uh, later in life, he got his master's from the University of Southern California, USC, fine on Trojans. Uh, along with that, he later taught at the University of Cincinnati. This man had three children. Uh, he was divorced later in life. Near the end of his life, he sued his barber, for the barber trying to sell some of his hair, etc. And you're like, okay, that's a strange story. And I go, and by the way, this man's name is Neil Armstrong. And some of you go, wait a second, Josh, Neil Armstrong, I feel like you're missing a very important part of his story. What is that? What's the story of Neil Armstrong? Someone talk to me now. Yeah, go for it. Yeah. First man on the moon, right? First man on the moon, or the first man to be in a studio in Burbank. Whichever, let's follow those, those stories later. But, all right? So like, imagine if you were to tell that story without talking about Neil Armstrong being on the moon. No, no. How do we, who is Neil Armstrong? He is the first man to be on the moon. That one event is not just something he did, that's who he is. Does that make sense? Who's Neil Armstrong? He's the first man to be on the moon. Well, who's God? Who is God? Who is he really? He's the God of the Exodus. That's who he is. And you're gonna see that again and again that this book is all about showing us what God's really like. Young person, you can know what God is like. You can know not just what he did one time, but you can know who he always is. Because as we look at these five sermons through the book of Exodus, we're only going to be able to cover the first 15 chapters. But as we look at these sermons, I want you to see again, this is who God is today. Hey, we just sang, didn't we? Question, who is the God that you sing to? Or who's the God that you pray to? Or who's the God when you tell other people about God? Like, but who is this God you're always referencing? You ready? He's the God of the Exodus. And that's what I want you to see this week. So let's turn now to the book of Exodus. Let's go there. Exodus chapter 1. And tonight, we are going to look at chapters 1 and 2. We're going to look at chapters 1 and 2. This is like a, the introduction uh, to the book of Exodus. And here's what I'm going to do. Is I'm going I'm to read these two chapters. And what I want you to do is follow along. So I'm going to read these chapters. And you're going to see this is like 40% of the Prince of Egypt movie. It's right here in these two chapters. I want you to follow along. And after I'm going to pray, and then I've got uh, you know little prizes up here afterwards. And I'm going to ask you what happens. So as I'm reading, like follow along because we're going to kind of you're going to talk back to me afterwards about what happened in the story. Okay, and whoever can tell me what happens next, I got I got uh, all the fancy creams and lotions that Sancho used to say, all the goodies for you. So we'll look at that in a second. Let's look at Exodus chapter one. Follow along with me. Here we go. Word of God reads. Now these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. They came, each one with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the persons who came from the loins of Jacob were 70 in number, but Jacob was already in Egypt. I'm sorry, Joseph's already in Egypt. 
Joseph died and all his brothers in that generation. But the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty so that the land was filled with them. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, Behold, the people of the sons of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal wisely with them, or else they will multiply in the event of war. They will also join themselves to those who hate us and fight against us and depart from the land. So they appointed taskmasters over them to afflict them with hard labor. And they built for Pharaoh storage cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and the more they spread out so that they were in dread of the sons of Israel. The Egyptians compelled the sons of Israel to labor rigorously. And they made their lives bitter with hard labor and mortar and brick and all kinds of labor in the field. All their labors which they rigorously imposed on them. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives. Those are like nurses who go with labor and birth. It spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra, and the other was named Pua. And he said, when you are helping the Hebrew women to give them birth, and you see them upon the birth stool, if it is a son, then you shall put him to death. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God, and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the boys live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and let the boys live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Well, because the Hebrew women are not as the, not as the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife can get to them. So God was good to the midwives, and the people multiplied, and they became very mighty. Because the midwives feared God, he established households for them. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born to you is cast into the Nile, and every daughter you are to keep alive. Now a man from the house of Levi went to marry a daughter of Levi. The woman conceived a son, conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. And when she could hide him no longer, she got him a wicker basket and covered it with tar and pitch. Then she put the child into it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to find out what would happen to him. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe the Nile, with her maidens walking alongside the Nile. And when she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid, she brought it to her. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the boy was crying, and she had pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. And his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women that... She may nurse the child for you. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go ahead. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, for I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. The child grew and brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and became her son. She named him Moses and said, Because I drew him out of the water. Now it came about in those days when Moses had grown up that he went out to his brethren and looked on their hard labors and he saw an Egyptian beating one of his brethren. So he looked this way and that and when he saw no one was around he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. 
And he went out the next day, and behold, two Hebrews were fighting with each other. And he said to the offender, why are you striking your companion? But he said, who made you a prince or a judge over us? Are you intending to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Pharaoh was afraid and said, surely the matter has become known. And when Pharaoh heard of this matter, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the presence of Pharaoh and settled the land of Midian and sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. And they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. And when they came to rule their father, he said, Why have you come back so soon today? So they said, An Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds, and what is more, he even drew the water for us and watered the flock. And he said to his daughters, Where is he then? Why is it that you have left the man behind? Invite him to have something to eat. Moses was willing to dwell with the man, and he gave his daughter Zephora to Moses. She gave birth to a son and named him Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Now it came about in the course of those many days that the king of Egypt died, and the sons of Israel sighed because of their bondage, and they cried out, and the, their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. So God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the sons of Israel, and God took notice of them. This is God's very words. Students, let's pray, and then we'll talk about this together. Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing us to camp. Thank you, God, that you speak to us. Lord, this is not just an old story. This is more than just an old story turned into a cartoon. God, this is your very word given to us. Help us to learn from it, Lord. Help us to learn the message that you are teaching us from the book of Exodus. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. All right, here's what I need you to do. Keep a bookmark in the book of Exodus and close your Bibles. Close your Bibles. There will be much reading this weekend, and therefore there will be much reward for those who are paying attention. So here's my question. Don't be looking. No cheating. This is a closed book test now. Who can raise their hand and tell me? Let's go in order. Let's recap Exodus 1 and 2. What's the very first thing that happens in Exodus chapter 1? Who's got me? Right there. Yes, sir. What do you got? Yeah. So what happens is that there are a bunch of people who are coming into the land of Egypt. Good. Okay, there's a bunch of people coming to the land of Egypt. And who are those people? Who do they are? Um, they are Israel. Yeah, they're the sons of Israel. Do you like these ones? The cookies and cream version kisses? You have to go there. Hey, man. Look, got it. Hey, yeah. So, Hershey Kisses? That's not Hershey Kisses. That's much, that's bigger. That's a, a big hug. Okay, so, uh, here's what we got. Like, first thing we got, uh, why is this guy up here? He's up here. Get out of here. What are you doing, Ryan? You shut over my thing. All right, so, the, the first thing you see is that a man with a microphone. Uh, and another one right here. Um, so, the first thing you see is, okay, the, the sons of Israel, right? Book of Genesis was all about this nation of Israel, Sunday and Joseph goes to Egypt, and we get that first. Okay, we, we learn that, then all those people die, and then what happens? Who can tell me what happened next? You, sir, go for it. The king of Egypt ended up forgetting about what Joseph did, and he ended up dying That's right, he forgets who Joseph is, and like, dude, we gotta put these people to work. Uh, what would you like, twigs? You fan of twigs? 
Yeah, you took sure. Okay, that's the most productive I gave to accept. That's great. Good. Okay, so he puts in the forged labor, and then they're going to like singing like mud, dirt, straw, water, whatever. <laughs> like, the song might go. Okay, what happens after that? What goes down? Yes. Yeah, so in, we'll find out. Yeah, we'll get there in a second. We're early. We're early. I'm gonna come back to you in a second. What happens before that? So he puts in the hard labor, but you know he's like, I'm gonna, I must break these Israelites. And what happens? Go for it. Chapter 2 
ended with. The last thing that chapter is, so Moses is there. How can you tell what your life is worth? He, he gets married. Everything's great. And what's the last thing at the very end of chapter 2? Let's go home with the orange hat. Gilford. Yeah, it says that God saw and he knew and he remembered. Uh, and my version says he took notice of them. Uh, but I think the says he knew. Good, okay. We've recapped it. So here's the question. What do we do with these chapters? Like it's 40% of a, of a movie, but what do we do with these actual chapters? What should we learn from them? Well, one you think is like these chapters are like the prologue of a story. Like how many of you have ever seen Tangled? Tangled, right? Yeah. And it starts with like, this is the story of how I die, right? And it's like the background, and the soldiers look for the thing, Mother Gothel hides it under a bush, and she exposes it, and then like she takes the girl to the tower, montage, Tangled, movie really starts, right? There's that opening scene. Or have you ever seen the Hobbit movies? Yeah. Whoever saw the Hobbit movie? Right? The story of Dale and the city, and the, and the very last word like, and he never forgave. Well, that's kind of like what these chapters are. These are like the opening scenes of a movie. It tells us what this movie is going to be like, and it fills us in on really the backstory. So this is all kind of backstory to this movie. And here's what I want you to think about of these stories. I want you to think about a man, as you think about this name, Michael Buffer. Michael Buffer. Now, I'm just going to explain this out, but some of you, show the picture now. It's been exposed. Thanks, Mom. You didn't know who this guy is. Who knows who this guy is? You might not know who he is. Some, right? Somebody, okay, you, wait, wait, do you know who he is? No, no. Someone over here thought I saw him? Just who? Who is he? Yeah. Well, yeah, so he's very famous for wrestling stuff and boxing stuff. This guy, he was a used car salesman at some point. He was an actor at some point. He is famous for five words. He's famous for saying one thing, five words, over and over again. Yes, the camera app. Let's get ready to rumble. Get ready to rumble. That's all he does. Boxing match in this corner, in this corner. Let's get ready to rumble. That's all this guy does. That's kind of how you should think of Exodus chapter 1 and chapter 2. Exodus 1 and 2 is a throwdown. It's a preview of a fight that's going to happen. And it's a preview of who's going to win that fight. Let me explain that to you. We're going to look at three points. We'll kind of summarize this. Let's look at first point number one. We'll call this the challenger. Let's talk about the challenger. I'll give more details on say For now, just write down the challenger. That's good. The challenger is where we are looking. Now, let's think about who the challenger is. And the challenger is obviously Pharaoh. The challenger in this boxing match, this fight, is this man named Pharaoh. Now, think about Pharaoh. At this time, Pharaoh is king of, if not the most popular kingdom in the world, one of the most popular kingdoms of the world. He's the king of Egypt. And that's, that's the title for Pharaoh. And, and Egypt is a, is a country that's hundreds of miles long and only about five miles wide because their wealth, does anyone know why Egypt was so strong? Where does their wealth come from? Yeah, talk to me, Red. What is it? The Nile River, right? The Nile is a source of trade. Crops grow along the Nile. Like you're in the desert, and yet there's this one strip of land where you can actually live and make money off of it. And so that's why Egypt is so powerful. They're hard to attack because you've got to cross a desert to go and attack them. Such as the Nile, where that was the strength of the people of Egypt. And what the people of Egypt did, as we saw, is they put the people of Israel 
to forced work. They go to war with the people of Israel as it were. They enslave them. They see that the enslaving of them uh, makes the work all or grow even more. Then they try to exterminate them. Then they have more direct uh, enlistment of the whole kingdom to kill the people of Israel. But what you need to understand, in order to understand who Pharaoh is and how wicked Pharaoh is, you need to know who Israel is. Take a look at verse 7 of chapter 1. Everybody in your Bibles, let's go to Exodus 1, verse 7. Read over now. We're going to kind of bounce around. Listen to verse chapter 1, verse 7. It says, The sons of Israel were fruitful, increased greatly, multiplied, and filled the land. Think about those words right there. They were fruitful, increased, multiplied, filled. Has anyone ever heard those words before? In another part of the Bible? Do we know anywhere else in the Bible where it says, like, fruitful, multiply, fill? Yeah, young lady in the back. Strong. That is the, actually, it is the right answer, but there's actually one that's way before that. So she said, no, in the ark, that's totally what happens. What happens before that? Yes, sir. Take a look up on the screen, Genesis 1 28. I had that. God said to the man and woman, he said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. And take a look. This, she said Noah. That's Genesis 9. And you be fruitful, multiply, increase greatly, and multiply it, right? So listen, God's plan from the beginning has been that he would have people that represent him to be his people that fill the earth with more representatives of him. So it means to be made in God's image, that you represent God, you fill the earth with it, right? That's, that's what God's plan was. And as we get to Exodus, what you find is that Israel is the means by which God is accomplishing his purpose. Like God is filling the earth with his people through this, this people that he actually, in Exodus 4, will call Israel his son. Just like Adam was his son in Genesis 1. Now Israel is his son. And he tells them, be fruitful, multiply. So when you get here, what you read about is like, wow, when you read verse 7, you should think, okay, Israel is fulfilling God's purpose. Which helps us understand this, that Pharaoh, when he does this, he's not just fighting against Israel. He is fighting against God's purposes. Here's where you can add to point number one. The challenger is this. Pharaoh's fight is against God. Pharaoh's fight is against God. And you'll see that specifically. I mean, remember, the Egyptians had, had thousands of deities. But you know who their most powerful deity was? It was really Pharaoh. Pharaoh was a sort of representative of the gods. In fact, if you did watch Prince of Egypt, I think one of the things they do accurate is that the cartoon Pharaoh often says, I am the morning and evening star. As if I'd say, I am a sort of God. There was another uh, Exodus kind of movie that came out eight years ago. And in that movie, that Pharaoh gets mad at Moses and says, I am God. I am God. Well, that's pretty accurate to what you find in Exodus. Pharaoh sees himself as God and makes his war with the one true God. And so what does he do? He enslaves the people, we read. He puts them to work to get them to stop growing. He's trying to, to stop them from multiplying. So he uses slavery, and then he hires the nurses, 
And then he tells the whole kingdom, if there's any sons, kill the sons. But let's, let's amplify this a little bit more. Just so you really understand, this is who Pharaoh is. Okay, take a look at verse 13 and 14 here. Verse 13 says, the Egyptians compelled them to work, uh, to labor rigorously. Verse 14 says, they made their lives bitter with hard labor in mortar and bricks. Now, what was that? Pharaoh had them build cities, and they were cities that were meant to honor him. But as we think about verses 13 and 14, we see that phrase there, mortar and bricks. You go, okay, mortar and bricks. Do you know there's one other time in the Old Testament where those two words are used together? And, and by the way, it shouldn't surprise us that it's in another book written by Moses. You guys know Genesis was written by Moses. Actually, the first five books of the Bible are written by Moses. Well, in Genesis chapter 11, take a look up here. Genesis 11 says, this is the Tower of Babel. And at the Tower of Babel, they say, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen, that's mortar for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its tops in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the world. Even there, take a look. You see it says up there on the screen, it says, come, let us, come, let us. And if you look at verse 10 of chapter 1, Pharaoh is saying, come, let us. Here's what you have going, ready? Pharaoh says, come, let us basically make Babel 2.0. I will build a city that I will show myself as the most glorious. Myself as the greatest. I will show that I am really the king of the world. And so Pharaoh is very clearly in chapter 1 and 2. Here's what he's doing. He's making war with God. He's trying to stop the purposes of God. And establish himself as the greatest person in the world. Establish himself as the number one. And that's what he's doing here. He's making war with him. And student. You should not be surprised by this. You should not be surprised by this. Because what the Bible tells us is that there's always going to be an enemy who tries to stop God's purposes. One more verse on the screen for now. In Genesis chapter 3, God says this to the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Listen to that promise. God is saying that there's always going to be war between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Between the people of God and those who give their allegiance to Satan, to the powers of this world. Friends, that's no different than what we see today. Here you have Egypt, the most powerful kingdom in the world. And their king says, I will overthrow God. I will establish myself as God. I will reject all of his rule, and I will reign in his place. Students, isn't that so much of what happens today? I mean, just think about this. Think about our own country. Which of God's commands are not only disregarded, but where champ, where rebellion is not celebrated. Right? We, we live in a world that is bent against God, that's in rebellion against Him. Human life is disregarded. We know that by the millions of abortions that have happened in our country. 
when I when I preached this a few months ago, Spain had voted to approve assisted suicide for anyone suffering with a chronic illness. Uh, when I was studying those remarks, go ahead the next picture. This is this is kind of bonkers. Uh, somebody texted me this: the most loving gift you can give your first child is to not have another. Not someone wasn't like recommending this. Someone texted this to me. He's like, this was in uh, this is in Vancouver. This is from a few months ago. You think about it. God says, be fruitful and multiply. And the world says, you're good with just one. Right? It's the responsible right thing to do. You can, you can take that off and go back to last one. Right? Like that, that, that's confusing. Which of God's commands do they not go, no way, I will rebel against this? Over and over again, we see the celebration of sin, the, the modernizing of sin, people who rejoice in sin and normalize sin, and, and war is made against those who try to be obedient. This isn't just a culture war. I don't, I don't want, some of you guys are adults talk, I'm sure you're thinking like, oh, this is like Republican Democrats. No, 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 no. This is, this is the seed of the serpent, Pharaoh, against the kingdom of God. People trying to overthrow his rule. So Ephesians 2 says that the whole world, that, that sinners walk according to his power. Friends, this is what fighting God looks like. It looks like Pharaoh. Now listen, here's what I want you to think about. You hear about kingdom of God, Pharaoh. This weekend, as we look at Pharaoh, particularly as we look at him tomorrow night in sin and rebellion, I want you to understand, when it comes to God, there is no middle ground. See, you guys live in a city that is still pretty religious. Like, I, I live here in, in Santa Clarita. I preached with here a few months ago from the valley. In L.A., I mean, L.A. is like a, people just celebrate sin there. there there's all sorts of stuff happens in Los Angeles. You guys live in a pretty conservative area here. It's Mecula. Uh, I know, you know, the, the uh, North County area as well. still pretty conservative. And because of that, what you might think is that, well, I've seen so many people just be casually religious. You know, I've seen so many people like, they're not doing bad stuff, but they're not really all in. And there really is, student, no middle ground when it comes to following God. There is no spiritual Switzerland where you can just kind of claim neutrality. Where you just like, well, I'm not all in on God, but I'm also like not against him either. No, no, no. It, it's either you are with God and submitting to God and part of his people, or you're walking like Pharaoh, walking like the serpent that's trying to undo God's purposes and rebel against him. You can't sit on the fence. You can't straddle the line here. It's one or the other. And so there is a sort of war that's happening, not against flesh and blood, uh, but a spiritual war. And do not be foolish to think that you can stand in the middle. Let me be more direct than we move on to point two. All sin is war against God. Every sin that we commit, from the really bad ones to the little ones, really there are no little sins, right? Because all of it is war against God. All of it is the ones that are trying to build up our glory and undo the purposes of God. That's exactly who Pharaoh is. That is the challenger. Let's go to number two. Let's look at the second participant in this throwdown, the champion. 
the champion. So we see the challenger, uh, he is Pharaoh. The champion is going to be God. I'm going to introduce him tomorrow as Yahweh. It's interesting that God doesn't speak in this passage. He doesn't talk much. And yet what we find is that despite Pharaoh's like best efforts, he can't, or God can't be defeated. Consider for a moment this story and how many like great reversals there are. Right? How, how easily Pharaoh's plans are undone. Right? So what does it say? The Pharaoh forces the Israelites into hard labor. He's thinking, maybe if I work them harder, life is difficult, they'll have less babies. What do they do? They multiply more. They're having more kids. And then Pharaoh goes, okay, that's not working. So here's what I'll do. I will tell the midwives, kill the boys. It'll be easy. And, and notice how easily the midwives get out of it. How easily, we don't know exactly what happened. We don't know if the midwives told uh, them, like, hey, don't call us if you're having a baby. Uh, we don't know exactly how this went down, but we know this. The midwives easily undo Pharaoh's purposes. They don't listen to him. And then finally, he says, throw them into the Nile. Drown all the babies. Now consider the, the irony, right? Consider the irony of this, this situation. There is a mom who puts her baby in the Nile, puts the baby in a basket, and then what happens? Baby's delivered. Take a look at verse 22 of chapter 1. Here we go. Notice that again. Notice how stern Pharaoh's words are. Every son who is born, you are to cast in the Nile, and every daughter you are to keep alive. It's almost as if the sons are the threat, the daughters not so much of a threat. So let's kill the sons. And yet, who undoes who undoes Pharaoh's plans? Two midwives, a mom and a daughter, and then Pharaoh's own daughter. Okay, so how many Looney Tunes are old? You don't know who Roadrunner is and Wiley Coyote? Yeah. Have you ever watched this? Yeah. Like the Wiley Coyote is like investing heavily into the weapons of mass destruction to kill the Roadrunner. And every time not only does it not work, but it ends up blowing up in his literal face. And he literally at times loses all his teeth. And then they come back. It's, it's, it's a cartoon. It's okay. Um, so that's sort of what's happening here. That no matter what Pharaoh does, plan one, make them work harder. Plan two, let's get the nurses help. Plan three, let's get everyone help. No matter what happens, Pharaoh's plans keep blowing up in his own face. They do not work. Why? Why these great reversals? Here's why. It's, the, it's a preview of coming attractions. It's to show us the unstoppable hand of God. Point number two, we call it the challenger. The message is this, Yahweh's plans can't be stopped. And I'll introduce, if that's a working on her point, you're just like, God's plans can't be stopped. I jumped the gun there. I'll give you more on that when we get chapter three tomorrow. His plans can't be stopped. Again, consider those reversals. And in all of those, what we see, it wasn't just dumb luck, bad planning by Pharaoh. It's God's active hand. Right? So again, think about reversal one. He says, uh, I will make them work harder. And yet they are fruitful and they multiply. Well, why? Well, if you've read the book of Genesis, what do we know? Who's sovereign over the womb? God is. Who controls birth? God does. So, so any sign of birth in this story, despite consequences, is showing, no, God wins. Okay, let's think reversal two. Midwives, I want you to kill them. Well, well, why, uh, why, don't, why don't they follow? Why? Well, they look at verse 17. It says, but the midwives feared God. 
Now think of that picture for a second. Pharaoh. Who is Pharaoh again? And everyone together. In the minds of the people of Egypt, Pharaoh is a what? He's a? He's a god. And so you have a very visible god in front of them saying, I want you to kill the boys. And yet, are the, are the nurses, are the midwives afraid of that god? No, they fear, they have reverence for the one true god. And what does God do? Verse 20. So God was good to the midwives. Their people, families multiplied, and they became mighty. Right? So again, it's, it's not just that they were undid it. It's that God undid it. Now think about reversal three. Reversal three. We see that this woman, as was mentioned earlier, she puts her baby in a basket and sends him in the water. And the baby lives. And the question is, how? And, you know, it doesn't have like, you watch the movie the other night, it's not like the alligators and the hippos or anything like that. But you're like, okay, well, how did this happen? Was it just dumb luck? Well, no. Moses, the author of the book of Exodus, doesn't think it's dumb luck. Here's why. Take a look there. Everyone look at your Bible. Take a look at verse 3. It says, but when she could hide him no longer, she got him a wicker basket. See that word basket? That's a Hebrew word, tabah. Everyone say tabah. Oh, there you go. Good job. You learned some Hebrew this weekend. Okay. And that word shows up 28 times in the Old Testament. Two of those times are right here. The other 26, you ready, are all from one part of your Bible. Genesis 6, Genesis 7, and Genesis 8. Does anybody know what happens without looking in Genesis 6, 7, and 8? Who knows? Oh, somebody said it. Who said it? Yes. Somebody got that. Good. It's Noah's Ark or Noah's Tabah. In other words, it's as if to say, ready? Moses' mom put him in an ark. A little ark, not a big ark like that one. That would be a huge boat rolling down the road. It's his little baby doing a giant boat. But, but it's like a, a little ark. It's Moses' way of saying the same God who saved by ark then, saved by ark now. That it's, it's God's hand that's upon this little boy. And so when we see, again, God's plans can't be stopped. Whenever you see a birth story like this in the Bible, you, you are good to suspect that God is involved. And the word ark is a dead giveaway. This is one of God's hallmarks. Like saving water salvation by ark, this is like what God does. It's one of the tricks of his trade. And so he keeps winning. His plans can't be stopped. And so what do we do now? Well, now let's take a look at verse 10. Let's finish up this story. We're going to go through the rest of it really quick. Verse 10, you see that Pharaoh's daughter brings Moses to her house. She names him Moses. And now there's this question. Okay, let's ask this question. Moses, uh, he's obviously a Hebrew. Obviously, God's hand is on his life. But he's growing up in Pharaoh's daughter's house. So here's the question. Who is Moses? Is he an Israelite? Or is he an Egyptian? Well, guess what? The rest of the chapter answers that for us. Because scene one, you have this, this murder where Moses sees an Egyptian beating an Israelite. He looks this way, he looks that way, he kills that Egyptian, he buries him in the sand. And then you see scene two, which you mentioned, he, he chose to break up a fight. And they say, well, who are you? Are you going to kill us? Then you kill the Egyptian. Now, what is Moses thinking here? Well, Moses is just a good guy, right? Moses just loved freedom. He, he wanted to get rid of that, right? 
Let me show you. Let me jump. I'm going to jump to a verse real quick. One second. Like, take a look at Acts 7. Uh, up on your screen. Acts 7 helps us with this. Do we have that? Domino. Go. Look at this. Acts 7. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart, Moses, to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wrong, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. Why did he do that? Well, he supposed, he thought that his brother, the other Israelites, would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. Here's the thing. Moses thought, wait a second. God saved me by an ark. I'm in. Moses looked at his life and thought, clearly, God wants me to rescue his people. And clearly, all the other Israelites will understand that too. And they didn't. By the way, another preview of coming attractions, Israel not understanding God's purposes, as we'll see in Exodus. But what you see right off the bat is this Moses sees himself as a sort of deliverer. In fact, when he goes out to the desert, what does he do? There are not Israelites now, but Midianite women who are being oppressed. And what does he do? He delivers them. Moses is a deliverer. In fact, he says, I'm a soldier. I'm a foreigner. He does not say, you know, they say, where's the Egyptian man? He goes, I'm a, I'm a man without a country. I'm a man who's traveling. You see that? That's what I'm saying. It's God's hands upon this man's life. And it's very clear in this, this preview that this Moses does not see himself as belonging to Egypt. This Moses most likely is going to be some sort of savior, some sort of deliverer. How is it that the God who we're sitting here going to cannot be stopped? Well, he's got someone that he's been preparing. He's got someone his hands been upon. And it's this Moses, this deliverer. And we see from the rest of this, that yes, this man is to be a deliverer. Now, here's the question. You might be thinking, Josh, great story. I'm in junior high. I want to know a Shifra from a Pua. What, what do I do with all of this stuff? Well, let me tell you what you do with it. If God's purposes cannot be thwarted, that is the fuel, young person, for fearless faith. That is the fuel for saying, I can be obedient in every circumstance. And no matter what challengers, no matter what people rebel against God, I can stand firm. Just like, just like those Hebrew midwives did, who feared God more than Pharaoh. You know, this year was probably a much easier year with, uh, when it came to peer pressure. Because you didn't go to school. Like, you're not influenced by your friends do bad things on Zoom as much. Maybe a little bit, but not as much as you are in person, right? But I wonder, like, when you go back to the school and Dabrona comes to an end here, when you go back to the school, how are you going to obey when no one else is? Like, how are you going to say no to sin when everyone else is saying yes to sin around you? Let me push it a little further. I think a Christian youth group is a really hard place to be a real Christian. Oh, I do. Because you've got people here who say, I'm not a Christian. You've got people here who say, I am a Christian. And then you've got people who say, like, yeah, I am a Christian. But guys, we don't need to be that kind of Christian. I mean, let's be real. We don't need to be all in. And so how do you not fear what others think and not fear the rejection of others? Well, it's simple in one sense. By having a greater fear of God is. 
It's remembering that he never loses, and so therefore I can be faithful. You know, Josh, I don't, I don't have that, that kind of devotion to him. Well, it's probably because your view of God is too small, which is why well, we picked a book about knowing God, which is what we'll do more of starting tomorrow. That's where we're at so far. We look at the challenger. We look at the champion. Let's look at one last point, the cry. It's a short point. The cry. We saw this final scene. You know, it's interesting. All this oppression going on, all this difficulty for the people of Israel, how many people die in chapter 1 and chapter 2? How many deaths are mentioned? One. Pharaohs. Pharaoh's the only person that dies in this chapter. There, there's allusions to other death, but the only death mentioned is Pharaoh, as if to say God wins. In fact, you know, it's interesting. does anyone know this Pharaoh's name? You know, biblical scholars argue about this pharaoh. It's not, it's, it's maybe Ramses, like you saw in the movie. No one's really sure. Isn't it interesting that, like, we know Shifra and Pua, these two nobodies that were faithful? Like, God made it so we remember their names and have no idea who this pharaoh was. It's kind of cool, right? Uh, and so you start seeing, like, man, pharaoh really does lose in this, and this is awesome. And yet, what you do see in this story is what? The more things change, the more they stay the same. Because verse 23, it says that the sons of Israel sigh. One Pharaoh dies, another one raises, and their life just goes back to being hard. <clears throat> and the question you could ask is this Does God really care? Does God really care about his people? What I love about Exodus 2 is it teaches us to not mistake the timing of God. For the care of God. Do not mistake the patience of God for his compassion. Do not think, well, God's being slow, so there were, he's indifferent, he's apathetic, he could care less about my life. Because one of verses 24 and 25, look at these words. God heard, God remembered, God saw, and God took notice. Or something that gives me God knew. Friends, that is always God's response to when his people go through trials. That's what we're going to see tomorrow. That's what sort of activates God's response is that God sees his people. He hears his people. He remembers the promises he's made to his people. And he knows. He knows what's happening in their life. And he knows his plans. As soon as he knows what's happening in your life, and he knows his plans. Because of that, we're going to see a great salvation. The gauntlet has been dropped, right? That the fight is on, and Pharaoh's, the Pharaoh's saying, let's do this. And what you're going to see is God is going to wipe the floor with Pharaoh. And in the meantime, it's not just a, an epic win. It's us getting to see who this God is. That this is the God that not only cares for his people, but he radically goes to fight for his people and rescues them. We'll get to see more of that tomorrow morning. Let me pray. Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you for your word that we got to study for this great, great text and uh, the truth that we're going to see about you. Lord, I pray for these students that they would think tonight about their own life and their own devotion to God. That they would think hard about commitment to Him and whether or not they're really following God. 
Lord, we're looking forward to seeing more of you this week. Pray that you give us a big view of yourself, that we'd have such a great view, that we'd be amazed by you and astonished by you, that we would not fear other things in this world, but would remain faithful to you in all that we do. Lord, thank you again for the opportunity we have to be here at camp this weekend. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.